Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 43. We returned to Genesis, and we will look at chapter 43, and really chapters 42, 43, 44, 45, 46, 47. Really, it's, I think it's all this one unit. But I'm going to read the whole chapter of Genesis 43 this morning. And again, as always, when we read the text, look for special words like mercy and grace and, and other words like that that you might see in this text. Genesis 43. Now, the famine was severe in the land. So it came about when they had finished eating the grain which they had brought from Egypt that their father said to them, Go back, buy us a little food. Judah spoke to him, however, saying, The man, he means Joseph, the, they don't know it's Joseph, the Lord of Egypt. The man solemnly warned us, You should not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you do not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You will not see my face unless your brother is with you. Then Israel, that, that's Jacob, said, Why did you treat me so badly by telling the man whether you still had another brother? But they said, The man questioned particularly about us and our relatives, saying, Is your father still alive? Have you another brother? So we answered his questions. Could we possibly know that he would say, bring your brother down? Judah said to his father Israel, send the lad with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. We as well as you and our little ones. I myself will be searching for him. You may hold me responsible for him. If I do not bring him back, to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame before you forever. For if we had not delayed, surely by now we could have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best products of the land in your bags. Carry down to the man as a present a little balm and a little honey aromatic gum and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also. Arise, return to the man. And may God Almighty grant you compassion in the sight of the man so that he will release to you your other brother and Benjamin. As for me, if I'm bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money in their hand, and Benjamin, and then they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to his house steward, Bring them in into the house, and slay an animal, and make ready. For the men are to dine with me at noon. 
So the man did, as Joseph said, and brought the men to Joseph's house. Now the men were afraid, because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money that was returned and our sacks the first time that we are being brought in, that he may seek occasion against us and fall upon us and take us for slaves with our donkeys. That should strike us as being rather ironic, that they are concerned that they might become slaves. Verse 19, So they came near Joseph's house steward and spoke to him at the entrance of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we indeed came down the first time to buy food. And it came about when we came into the lodging place that we opened our sacks, and behold, each man's money was in the mouth of a sack, our money in full. So we brought it back in our hand. We have also brought down other money in our hand to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He said, Be at ease. Shalom. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. Then the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water and they washed their feet. And he gave the donkeys fodder. So they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they had heard that they were to eat a meal there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him present which was in their hand and bowed to the ground before him. Verse 26, again, and bowed to the ground before him. Then he asked them about their welfare, Shalom, and said, Is your old father well, that is, Shalom, of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. Verse 28, they bowed down in homage. As he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, he said, Is this your youngest brother from you spoke to me? He said, May God be gracious to you, my son. Joseph hurried out, for he was deeply stirred over his brother. He sought a place to weep. He entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out. And he controlled himself and said, serve the meal. So they served him by himself and them by themselves. And the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat bread with the Hebrews, for that is loathsome to the Egyptians. Now they were seated before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked on, and the men looked at one another in astonishment. He took portions to them from his own table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. So they feasted and drank freely with him. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you, Lord, for your love to us. In Hosea 14, it says that you love freely. And we would plead 
that even through the reading and preaching and explanation of this text, Lord, that we would cry out and truly have in our hearts this desire of more love, more love to you, O Christ. That's what I pray, that as we all hear your word, that we would be stirred in our hearts to get closer to you and to love you more sincerely. And so follow you more closely, Lord. We give you praise, and we pray this for your glory, Lord. Amen. Several weeks ago, we asked the question, are you closer to the Lord now than when you were first saved? Do you have more zeal for Christ now than you had a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago, fifteen years ago, thirty years ago, when you were first saved? Are you closer to Jesus Christ, our Lord, now, after being saved for a while? Or is your zeal, your love, your commitment, your dedication, your obedience, your prayer life, is it less now than when you were first saved? We even said that though we believe what Scripture says in the book of Genesis, so we don't believe in evolution, if we're not careful, they can be a type of de-evolution. That is the second law of thermodynamics, true physically, sometimes even spiritually, we can have a type of the second law of thermodynamics. That is, we tend to break down. Instead of improving and getting better, If we're not careful spiritually, after we're saved, after those fumes die out, we can become less than what we used to be. And I think to a degree that that is somewhat the picture here in Genesis 42 to 45 And that is that these brothers, these sons of Jacob, at least ten of them, really were not where they needed to be at with God. Are they saved? Are they lost? Perhaps Jacob is, perhaps Judah is saved. Maybe they're saved, maybe they're not. But they're not really following hard after God. And they're becoming less than what they were supposed to be, chosen of God to be the people of God and to represent God. And so God takes them through these through this difficult time in order to restore them, not just to Joseph, but to restore them to God. Certainly, if the brothers of Joseph are wrong with God, then it's going to be difficult for them to be right with Joseph, right? They threw Joseph into a pit, Not just because they hated Joseph, which was true, but also because they were wrong with who? God. The brothers of Joseph, Judah and Simeon and Reuben, their main problem wasn't simply they hated Jacob. The main problem was that they weren't right with God. And so this whole section, really really 42 to 43, we'll see maybe even further, is God not just seeking to restore the brothers to Joseph, 
but ultimately even to God. And that's why I believe in Genesis 50, verse 20, you have Joseph say to his brothers, you meant evil for me, but God meant it for good. God had a purpose in all of this, and that was ultimately to do good to Israel and to open the eyes of the brothers that they would see that God is for them, but they need to get right with God and to get right with Joseph. So what we have said is this. The Lord in his good providence seeks to restore his people. So then humble yourself and get right with God to experience fruitfulness and fullness. Often we come to Christ, we're saved, we're really on fire for the Lord, or maybe we go to a camp or a mission trip and we get very excited for Jesus. And we go hard for the Lord, we go hard for Christ. But then after a period of time, life gets busy, life gets difficult. Trials come. We can get bitter against God, against others. Our life just gets so busy that we we can't live on that past experience like we used to with the Lord. And we don't have a present experience with the Lord. And so then our, our fire for the Lord and for Christ begins to pass, begins to get smothered by life itself. Perhaps this is what was happening, perhaps, to these brothers But in this passage, again, God's going to bring them back to himself. And so we have to ask ourselves, do we see fruitfulness and fullness in our life? Are we even at the same place we were when we were saved? Are we pressing on in the Lord full of joy in Christ? Are we closer to God or further away from God? And in this passage, again, 42 through 43, There's many different, we said, interconnecting pathways. You can use ingredients if you want to. There's different ingredients or dynamics of character that God is going to work on in these brothers' lives in order for them to be really brought back to God, to get right with God, and to go forward with God and with Joseph and others. And I'm not going to go through them all. You can... Look at the past outlines. We've gone through eight of these dynamics already. Eight of these ingredients we've looked at already. That is to be restored with God, to go forward with God, to have fruitfulness and fullness in your life. There are certain essential quality dynamics that we need to have in our life. And I have found 12 that are in this passage. We've looked at eight of them. We're going to look at four this morning. And so it's probably not possible to get all these different essential ingredients and say, okay, 12, I'm going to work on all these 12. Maybe take three or four and seek to work on those. We're going to go over four this morning. These essential ingredients or interconnecting pathways that we need to see developed in our own life. So this is really number nine. You can do number one if you want to. But this is really number nine. This is really the third sermon in a set of three. The title is Restoration. God in his good providence seeks to restore us 
to fruitfulness and fullness, we do that by being humble and getting right with him. Okay, but what does that look like? Well, number nine, step up and step in. Step up and step in. Initiate and accept responsibility. And we see this really in verses 1, 1 through 10. We see this with Judah. If we want to get right with God, it takes stepping up and stepping in. It takes assuming responsibility even at the cost of yourself. The text really emphasizes this. You can look, and there are several ways. The text emphasizes this with Judah especially. You can look at verse 9. You see where it says, I myself? I myself. You could translate it, I, I will be responsible for him. I will be liable. I, I will be liable for him. You have the pronoun I, but you see where it says myself? That pronoun and the verb are really one term, one word in the Hebrew. So when you have a pronoun and a verb, and the verb also has I with it, it becomes really intense. It becomes very emphatic. So Judah is saying, remember in context, Reuben said what? Let's take Benjamin, and don't worry, Father, about Benjamin. If I don't bring Benjamin back, you can kill my kids. Judah is saying, if I don't bring Benjamin back, I'm a liable. Perhaps he was looking over at at Reuben like, I am at fault. The blame will be on me. And so the Hebrew here is very emphatic to where Judah is saying that I am the one that will stand in the gap. It's not... I'm not going to pledge my kids that my kids somehow will lose their life or my wife or my livestock. It's me. I'm the one that is responsible and to blame if things go bad. So remember, Judah was the one that was a pretty bad dude and was behaving horribly and was even going to... He was willing at least to kill Tamar, but in the end... What did he say? She is more righteous than me. And now we see Judah stepping up and and even stepping in the gap and saying, you know what? We got to get Simeon back. We got to get food. We got to survive. Put it on me. Not my kids. Not my wife. Me. And further, you can even see here what he says in verse 10. For if we had not delayed, surely by now we could have returned twice. We should already be gone. We should have left long ago. Let's move. So he's saying, step in. I'm going to step up, step in, do it now. Let's move. Let's roll. Let's get the show on the road. Let's go, go, go. So he's being a leader. He's, let's do it. Let's do it now. Let's quit talking and let's actually get to doing This is Judah. Also, he emphasizes how serious it is. You can look at verse 8. Let's do this because it's an issue of life and death. Verse 8, that we may live and not die. Not just us, but you, Dad, 
and not just you, but even our, our children. If we don't have food, we're going to die. Now, verse 8 does not say this, and perhaps Judah wasn't thinking this way, but theologically, what is at stake if Jacob and all their brothers and their children die? What's at stake? Everything. Everything. Your salvation. Because Jesus came from the line of Judah. So if they all die, there is no line of Judah. If they all die, Genesis 3.15 is inaccurate. If Genesis 3.15 is inaccurate, then the Bible is not inspired. A lot is at stake. (laughs) Not saying that Judah knew and understood all of that, but Judah is now stepping up, stepping in. we got to do this. we got to move. We have to be quick. People's lives are at stake. And even, perhaps he is thinking of the promises that were made to Abraham. About from Abraham, there will be nations, and all the earth is going to be blessed. But if they all die, then what? It ain't going to happen. So you have here, you have this sovereignty of God and the promises of God, but yet Judah is saying, God is sovereign, God has promised, so what do we do? We move, we go, we get busy with what God wants us to do. So this isn't, as we said of Reuben, Reuben made a small step, at least Reuben wanted to do something, but what he said was wrong. Judah here is making a big step. He's stepping up and he's stepping in. So in light of this, and even this emphasis with I, I myself, I'm going to do this. Even in light of this, then, what is it that God wants you to do? How do you and I need to step in and step up? What area of responsibility do you need to say, put the blame on me? This is what I should do as a husband, as a father, as a son, as a daughter, as a single person, as a student, as a believer. This is what I need to do. John 15, verse 13. We're familiar with this passage. John 15, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this. The one lay down his life for his friends. Now it's not explicit, but implicitly you see a Christ dynamic in this passage, right? Because Judah is ultimately the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And Judah here is stepping in and he's stepping up and saying, if I don't fulfill this, I'll step in the gap and sacrifice my life. That's why I'm reading John 15, 13, that there is this willingness to, I will lay down my life for whatever God wants me to do. So in what area do you need to step up and step in and lay down your life? It could be spiritually, physically, relationally, and your marriage, at work, in the church. In what way? You can remember that Israel, the nation Israel, they've been delivered out of bondage from Egypt. 
they're wandering around in the wilderness and they've been really disobedient and then they get the book of Genesis and they've been told that they need to enter the promised land and to take it. Even though there's giants in the promised land, they're to enter the promised land and take it. And they're very hesitant. And they get the book of Genesis and they're reading about Judah who was willing to step up and step in. And now you're reading about the same thing. In what way does God want you to step up and step in? Some of you are and have stepped in. You've stepped up and you've stepped in. You've accepted responsibility. You're serving. But some of you don't. It's almost like it doesn't matter. And so we have to ask, how can we step up? How can we step in? Whether it's marriage, whether it's church, whether it's our neighborhood. What does the Bible say? How can I be more like Jesus? Now, perhaps you would say, okay, Tom, that, I mean me, but the text, the Spirit of God is convicting me, but I I can't do that. I, I don't have the strength. I don't have the spiritual stamina. I don't have what it takes to step up and step in. But the, the truth is, join the club. Nobody does. Nobody does. And that's even what the Spirit of God is doing here in this text. You can see in verse 11 and following, Jacob is being a good father. Perhaps that's why in verse 11 he's being called Israel because now he's doing the right thing. And notice what Jacob Israel does in verse 14. Basically, he prays. It's not the kind of prayer where he says, time out, please join me in prayer, but he's giving them a prayerful blessing. He gives them practical guidance. You can see that in verse 11, verse 12. He's giving them practical things to do. But then verse 14, he says, may God, may the El Shaddai grant you mercy, is the Hebrew word. So I think we can say a tenth dynamic is see your need of God. Jacob understands that what Judah needs, what his sons need, is they need God. For us to step up and to step in, we need God, specifically God's might and God's mercy. God's might and God's mercy. And this takes humility. Lord, I want to step up and to step in and be the kind of husband, father, son, student, employee, Lord, that I need to be. But I don't have the strength. Lord, I need your might and your mercy, Lord. This, again, is what the text is doing. The text itself highlights this with all of these different words, with this out loud, prayerful blessing that Jacob is giving. Look at the words, God Almighty. This is El Shaddai. And you, you might remember from Genesis 17, it's not, it's not just God is mighty, but the word for Shaddai means mountain or even means breast. So when a small baby might feed at his mother's breast, that word plays double duty for the idea of mountain and breast. So then what in the world is the passage 
talking about when it says El Shaddai. The idea is that He is mighty to provide. He is mighty to give you nourishment. That's the idea of this word. It's not just strength, it is. But even part of this idea is that God has the might to give you whatever you need to do whatever He wants you to do for however he, how long He wants you to do it. That's the idea of El Shaddai. He is the one that's able to give you what you need in terms of nourishment, spiritual, physical, relational, to do whatever He wants you to do. But not only that, if you keep looking at the verse, then He says that God Almighty may grant you compassion. And it's the word for, for mercy. The reason why I said the text is emphasizing this is because this is the first time in the Bible that the word mercy is used. It's right here. It's used twice in Genesis, the word mercy. This verse here, and then also later on, Joseph uses the word in verse 30, or the word is used about him when it says he was deeply stirred over his brother. This idea of compassion combined with this kindness and being lenient and not giving people what what they deserve. Combination, really, of, of mercy and kindness. That's the first time it's used here in the Bible. And we'll talk later about God's grace. Grace, basically, theologically, is giving people what they don't deserve. That's the idea of the word grace, giving people what they don't deserve. Mercy is not giving people what they deserve. He's having compassion on them in the sense of mercy. These brothers of Joseph, they kidnapped Joseph. They were going to kill him. Basically, they tortured him, and then they trafficked him. So what should happen to these brothers? At least they should be thrown in jail, I would say, for the rest of their lives. At least. And Joseph, he has, he's second in charge, basically, of the known world at that time. What does he do? What would you do? I would let these guys have it. What does he do? We'll see what he does. But apparently, you know, Jacob is here standing in the gap, as it were, and prayerfully in a type of out loud blessing of prayer, standing in the gap himself and saying, Lord, give them your might and give them mercy, Lord, with this Lord of Egypt. So Judah is saying, let's roll. I'm stepping up. I'm being the man. I'm the lion of Judah. I'm the lion. Let's go. Let's do it. And Jacob is saying, okay, thank you, Judah. Yes. Lord, grant Judah and their brothers your capable might of provision and mercy. He needs the Lord. We need the Lord. So the question then becomes for us, will you highlight your need for the Lord's might and mercy? Is that something that is at the forefront of your mind? It's not just 
men and women, I'm, I'm going to step up. I'm going to go for broke with God. I'm going to go all the way. Whatever he wants me to do, I'm going to do it. And then right in the forefront of our mind, however, and every beat with the heart is with his might, his mercy. If it's witnessing with his provision and with his mercy in my life. If it's loving somebody that's not that lovable, I can do it by God's might and by his mercy. I need God. That's why we said that the Lord in his good providence seeks to restore his people. So then humble yourself and get right with the Lord. Again, the text here calls Jacob Israel, and it can go back and forth in the text. And I, I assume that here Jacob is called Israel because he's acting how he should act as a father. Boys, thank you. Thank you, Judah. Go, do it. But you need God. You need his might. You need his mercy. Is there anybody here this morning that would say, I don't need God's might and I don't need God's mercy? Is there anybody here that that could lay claim to that? I I hope not. Everybody in this room, we need the mercy of God and the might of God in every area of our life, in ministry and relationships and parenting. And and I've told you all, I, I, I can remember how bad people parented. You know, all the... Different families I've seen. I don't mean Pilgrim Bible Church. I mean every church I've ever been to. Every church I've been to. There's a type of judgment I've had. If parents... Now, I didn't have any kids at the time. But I knew everything about parenting. And those poor people that didn't know how to parent. And then I became a parent, and then I realized what? I have no idea how to parent. I mean, I before I was... Married, I did parenting seminars in India. I didn't sign up for that. I was told to do that. But I'm saying all this to say, after 12 years, based almost almost 12 years of parenting, I still realize, after 12 years, I need God's might and God's mercy even more for parenting. Even more for marriage. I still don't know what I'm doing. I still get it wrong in marriage. I still get it wrong in parenting. I I get it wrong in every single area of my life. And I think you probably do too. And so we cry out, God, I need your strength. I need your mercy. Paul prays this way in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 15, 16, 17. He says, Lord, I pray that you strengthen with the power of your might through the Holy Spirit. That's how Paul prays. Even Hebrews 4.16, right, says, Let us therefore with confidence approach that throne of grace to find the perfect help and mercy in the time of need. So by God's grace, let us have this attitude where we are running quickly, not into boasting and self-sufficiency, but rather we run quickly to the throne of grace for God's might, God's mercy. God's might, God's mercy. There is a 11th area, or if you're taking notes for the first time, or separate notes for this individual sermon, then you could say number three. But if you've been following from several weeks ago, this is number 11. This other dynamic is come to terms 
with God. Come to terms with God that you're not in control. Come to terms with God that you're not in control. You may think you are, but you're not. I'm not. Come to terms with God. It means come to this realization, and not just a realization, but a type of relinquishment and acceptance that ultimately you're not in control. The Lord is. You're in control, God. And it seems that the Lord has been taken, Jacob, even Joseph, and especially the sons of Jacob, the brothers of Jacob, of Jacob, through this time, that they realize you're not in control. Again, the text is going to highlight this, and there's three points, I think, that the text is going to, to make. The text itself is going to bring this out. First, if you even go back and look at the end of verse 14, notice what Jacob says, As for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Now, Jacob here, he is not saying what sometimes we say. He is not saying sometimes what we say. Sometimes we may say what? It is what it is. It is what it is. Now, depending how we use that statement, it, it could be theologically inaccurate, right? We, we could say it is what it is in terms of fatalism. What's going to happen is what's going to happen. That The universe has planned it that way, and so that's the way it's going to be. If we're using it that way, then that's bad. Here, I believe what Jacob is doing is saying, basically, what God has determined it to be, that's what it's going to be. Because he's just prayed to God. He just prayed for God's mighty provision. And it's not using the name Jacob, it's using the name Israel. And so when he says, as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved, it's more like, Job says in, in his own book, in his own life, where, I think it's Job, where even if the Lord were to slay me, still I'm going to trust him. I think that's the language. God's in absolute control. And if my children die, I, I, I can't change that. You might remember about the family that was in, I think it was Bonnie Lake, and they were in a car, and they were driving under a, a freeway, and what happened? There was a big stone that fell off the bridge, landed on the car. I think it killed all of them. That, that's it's crazy. But there's nothing that could have changed that. That was written in the plan of God. And so Jacob is saying, God is absolutely sovereign. I don't want to lose Benjamin. I've prayed about it. We made a plan. We're trusting God's providence, but we made a plan. And I've prayed. I commit it to you, Lord. Whatever you want to do, I can't change that. I can't make it go away, Lord. You're in control. You're in charge. 
But also note, it's really incredible how this happens. The steward of Joseph and the brothers and really what he says to them. Look at verse 23. So they're basically talking to Joseph's house steward. They're really concerned that they're going to become slaves, right? And I mentioned that's ironic. So they they sold their brother Joseph into slavery. Now they are talking with Joseph and the house steward, and they're concerned that they're going to be kidnapped, as it were, and become slaves. Very ironic. In a biblical, ironic sort of way, And notice what happens. So they're going through their explanation, you know, trying to massage the situation. We're innocent in this matter. And in this situation, they actually are innocent. Normally they would not be, but they are right here. And then verse 23, the steward says, Be at ease. Shalom. Peace. Have this this calmness in your life. Don't be afraid. Now, note the specific words. Your God and the God of your father. So the God of Israel, the God of Isaac, the God of Abraham has given you treasure in your sacks. He's saying, your God, Yahweh, did this. What's going on is that God did it. Yes, I had your money the whole time, but ultimately, it was your God, your God, your daddy's God, your God. He's the one to put the treasure in your sack. God's in control. God did it. So be calm. Don't be afraid. This God that you say that you worship, he's the one that's in charge of the whole situation. So here you have this unclean foreigner that's not part of the people of God, telling the people of God to stop being afraid and trust the sovereignty of God. It seems, perhaps, that Joseph has been witnessing and teaching his house steward. Perhaps. But this is bringing out the sovereignty of God. God did it. God put this treasure into your sacks. But also note sovereignty of God in verse 26. They bowed down to the ground before him. Verse 28. They bowed down in homage. The idea of bowing down here is paying, it's, it's not worshiping, but it's paying great respect to. And you know how sometimes people, maybe somebody sings a, a great song, or somebody makes a, a great play at a baseball game and a football game, and people start doing this. I hate that. You know, it's like, oh, don't, don't do that. Well, the brothers of, of Joseph are actually getting down on their knees and doing this. That's what they're doing. Now, about 22 years earlier, Joseph, as a young lad, had told them, God gave me a dream, and in a dream, you're going to bow down to me. They rejected God's revelation They hated Joseph, and they said, no, that will never happen. To be sure it doesn't happen, we're going to kill you. Okay, you know what? If we sell him, we can make money off of him. So let's sell him. 
he can become a slave far away, die, but he, he would never rule over us ever. We would never bow to him ever, ever. We hate him. 22 years later, what are they doing? They're bowing down. And it's not because Joseph is so great. It's because what God said would happen, happened. It's because God is sovereign. It's because God is in charge. And you and I and man, we may say to God, that's not what's going to happen. It's not going to be that way. And the Lord, Psalm 2, verse 4, he's in heaven and he laughs. He scoffs at our foolishness. Does God have a sense of humor? Psalm 2, verse 4, if he has a sense of humor, it's a type of derision against foolishness. God's in control. What God said would happen, happened. So then, for you and I, then we come to the place where we realize we're not in control. Joseph isn't in control. He's not. Remember his whole story? And at Genesis 50, verse 20, he doesn't say, what I intended for you happened. And Genesis 50, 20, he says, what God intended to happen, happened. It's a story not primarily about Joseph, but it's primarily about God and his sovereignty and his sovereign control. So Joseph's not in control. Pharaoh's not in control. Jacob's not in control. Biden's not in control. Trump is not in control. Putin is not in control. Zelensky is not in control. Congress is not in ultimate control. Angeli is not in control. Ron DeSantis is not in control. No, no person ever has been in control of everything except for the Lord. That's it. The Lord. And so we have to realize that. Psalm 135 verse 6 applies to the Lord. Whatever he pleases, he does. Whatever he pleases, he does. There's truly one great high king, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So then, to take the words of the steward, if you and I are afraid, could it be that we're not surrendering to the omnipotent, sovereign control and might of God? Could it be if we really have a problem with fear, and I speak from one of of having experience with fear, could it be that we're not really trusting God's sovereign care like we should? Because the steward rebukes these brothers and says, don't be afraid. God's in control. God's in charge. If the Lord is for you, then who can be against you? Is that true? If the Lord is for you, then who can be against you? Satan? Death? Sin? All those things were crushed and conquered by Jesus Christ with his death and resurrection. God is sovereign over all things. We can trust him. Finally, there is this 12th dynamic that we need to see in our life, or if you want to, the fourth 
essential ingredient that we should at least really come to terms with, think about, and that is embrace the grace of God. Embrace the grace of God. Now, I, I, I did not plan this at all, but I turned on, before I left home this morning, I turned on the live stream of Ken Ramey at Lakeside Bible Church preaching. And basically, when he started the sermon, he was preaching on how though, although we are Christians, we still need the grace of God. And then this morning, when John was teaching, the last part of his sermon was basically about what? It had a lot to do with the grace of God. I didn't plan this. But now, the last point of this sermon is the grace of God. So the Lord must have a point for us really to understand and to embrace. And that is His grace. How much grace of God do you need? How much of God's grace do you need? By grace, what what do we mean? His free love, His free almighty love and power poured out upon you as gifts. That's what we mean by grace. Remember, mercy is God not giving you what you deserve. Grace, even the word charis, grace, means gift. Grace is God giving you what you don't deserve. How much grace do you need? You know, first on my notes, I wrote down tons of it. And then basically, I kind of scratched that out, said, no, no, I don't need tons. Really, I, I need truckloads of, of, of grace. And then I crossed that out. No, I, I don't need truckloads. I, I need more like freight trains. <laughs> like, you know, I need, have you ever had to wait, you know, like at the beach here, when you go to the beach, sometimes you have to wait for the train. And it's really, 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 really long to never, or even if you want to go to the, to the donut store in Puyallup, you have to wait for the train sometimes. And it's long and long and long. Unending! How much grace do I need? I need unending freight cars of grace. That's what I need from God. And not only do I need to receive it, but then I also need to what? Give it. I need for God in Christ to give me gifts that I can't merit and that I don't deserve. And then when I have that, my response is not to just hold it to myself but to share it with all. And I think that's what this text does, and I think this text oozes really with grace. You can see in verse 28, he does use the word, uh, verse 29, is this your youngest son? Is this Benjamin? May God be gracious to you, my son. And by son, he means the, you know, the, the, the youngest one. So he does use the word grace, but if you keep looking at this passage, remember the historical episode, right? They had, they had trafficked, they sold their little brother into slavery, right? I mean, that's just disgusting. But yet, at verse 23, you see, Shalom, it's not just peace, but this blessedness of it is well with my soul. 
it is well. He wants his brothers to not just have this temporary kind of peace, but for them to be, I'm doing well. I think that's grace that he's treating them this way. But as you keep looking at the passage, instead of getting angry at them, he has to leave to weep because he, see, he sees his youngest brother. And instead of saying, you terrible brothers, you kept me from seeing my baby brother, I'm going to hang you up by your earlobes. Instead, he weeps. Weeps. He washes his face. And then what happens? He serves the meal. Now, the custom in Egypt was, you know, there is this Egyptian lord, and then the Egyptian workers, and, you know, the Hebrews really can't have dinner or a meal with us. But he does feed them. And he feeds them a whole scrumptious meal. And even if you look at verse 33, he puts them in order. Why is, why is he doing this? Well, he puts them in order of their birthright to emphasize who does he treat the best? The youngest. Now, custom in the Middle East was not that the youngest gets all the blessing, but the who? The oldest. Who gets all the blessing? The youngest. That is grace. That is God's grace. Then look at verse 34. He took portions to them from his own table. That's also grace. To Benjamin, he gives five times as much as any of theirs. That's grace. But look at the end of verse 34. So they what? They feasted. Now, it gets a little... What would my children say? I forgot the word. Sketchy? That could be the word. It gets a little bit sketchy. Because the Hebrew says, and they got drunk. So maybe we could say, they got a little bit inebriated. Why is this here in the Bible? Have, have you ever known, I, I know a dear sister, nobody here, nobody here, I, I know a dear sister that if she drinks one beer, she gets a little, a little high, a little inebriated. Okay? But why is this here in the Bible? Well, these brothers with Joseph, they have tons to eat, and they're such a joyful mealtime that they probably drunk a little bit too much, and they get a little inebriated. But why is this here? I think it's here to emphasize that Joseph is not, here's some water from the well, and here's a grape. Enjoy. But rather, there is this abundance of food and this abundance of drink. And they are being deluged with the grace of God through Joseph. I think that's the idea. The Numerican standard says they drank freely with him. It, yes, but it's they drank a lot freely with him. Meaning, the point being emphasized is that Joseph wasn't stingy. He gave the best of the best 
to their brothers that did their best to get rid of him. Do we understand? Joseph does his best to bless the people that did their best to get rid of him. Joseph experienced the grace of God in his life many, many, many times. And now he's second in charge of Egypt. How does he treat those that hurt him the most? They can't give anything to him that he needs. He loves them freely. And he blesses them. That's the point of this text, that he really has tremendous grace and compassion on people that deserve, not simply nothing, but deserve to go to the dungeon until the day they die. He gives them grace. It is a picture of God's amazing grace through Joseph. So I think that this was written and given to the nation Israel so that they could see that they too were undeserving and they needed God's grace. And now it's given to you and I and it's given to the church so that we see for salvation and for walking with Jesus and forever and forever and forever, what do we need? God's amazing, wonderful, miraculous grace. It's why we say that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Because the Bible emphasizes over and over and over and over, for salvation and for walking with Jesus daily, we need God's free love and power poured out upon us, and that is grace. And we all need this. All the time. We're not saved by the, the grit of our own work. We're saved by the grace of God and Jesus Christ. And John mentioned Ephesians chapter 2 that says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins and the wrath that we were children of the wrath of God and we even walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air that now works in the sons of disobedience. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love, by grace you have been saved. Ephesians 2, 5. Then Ephesians 2, 7, in order that in the coming ages, from age to age, you might experience the riches of his kindness and grace. For by grace we have been saved through faith. It's not of ourselves, but the grace of God is this gift that he's given to us that we won't boast in ourselves, but in him. This amazing, incredible grace of God. And even it talks about it in the wonderful book, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We can even look at chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. And God, I was at a music festival on Tuesday with some beloved friends that are charismatic in their theology, and I began to quote 2 Corinthians 9, 8, those people that bring us all the food. Before I could get, I, I just simply said, and God is able, and my friend Jose finished it, God is able to make all grace abound to you. And we started basically worshiping over 2 Corinthians 9, 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you that always having all sufficiency in everything 
you may have an abundance for every good deed. Notice all those words. Able, all, abound, always, all, sufficiency, everything, abundance, every. I think this does tie in with so they feasted and drank freely with him. This is a foreshadowing. And even when we take the Lord's Supper, it's a foreshadowing. It, it remembers, but it's also looking forward to what? The marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Nobody here gets to heaven because they're good enough. Not, not, not one person. We get to heaven because of the grace of God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's how we get to heaven. And then we need to share that grace with others. And that can come through many different avenues. But recall, right, in the book of Ephesians, it says walk in love. One example that I can think of that we read about yesterday, not yesterday, Saturday, yeah, yesterday in the men's meeting was John Patton. In the 1800s, John Patton was a missionary to these islands off the northwest coast of Australia. And these islands were filled with cannibals. And the first two missionaries that went there, after 20 minutes, they were killed and eaten. So somehow that inspired John Patton to be a missionary there. That itself is the grace of God. Cannibals ate these two missionaries. Like Judah, maybe. I'll do it. I'll go. I'll lay down my life. And in fact, he had men at a church that said, they're going to eat you if you go there. And he said, perhaps. But even if I die by other means, I'm still going to be eaten by worms. So what does it matter? Well, he went there and he lost his first wife, she and his son died after one year. To keep the cannibals away, he slept on their graves. That was the grace of God. It was so bad at times that they were after him that he had to hide in a hollow tree for hours and hours. However, when these cannibals were sick, what would he do? He would visit them and seek to care for them. Even when they would take a knife and stick it to his throat, he would still seek to care for them. That is the amazing, miraculous grace of God working through John Patton. And God blessed that ministry and many came to Christ. What is it that God wants you to do? Who who do you and I need to reach out to and love but we would say, I, I can't do it. I, I don't have what it takes. Like, that's not true. But it's true and it's not true. Second Corinthians 9, 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you that always have in all sufficiency. You will have an abundance for every good deed. Whatever God wants you to do, there will be his might, there will be his mercy, and there will be his amazing, miraculous grace. We're saved by grace, we're kept by grace, we enjoy heaven forever by grace, but also we are to show grace to others. Can you say with me in your heart, I need the full, amazing grace of God? 
Well, the question then is the same. Are you closer today to God than when you were first saved? That's really the question we need to ask, right? Are you where you should be at with God right now? If not, make changes then to your life. And what we went over are some of the changes by God's grace that you can make. God is not against you. He's for you. Trust him. Pursue him. Humble yourself and get right with the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth. Thank you for the kind attention of these people. May your word do its work in those who believe. And we give you the glory. Amen.